Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. We've got a sort of a newsy episode this week. We're talking a little bit about uh, some quick bits, bits and bobs from around the the um, news holes. Uh, various. We say when we're recording, for in case people are mad that that the world has gone to hell since we recorded, because we'll we'll catch up on that later. But yeah, for now, it's it's what day is it? Wednesday. Wednesday, August 9th. So we're recording a little in advance this time, but that's all right. Yeah. So. You know, some stuff that I learned from going around to various homepages uh, um, for it's it's funny, you know, with, uh, with Twitter in decline and nothing really replacing it. Plus, Google becoming Different. horribly yeah. beshitted. Uh, <laughs> I end up just yeah. going to, you know, WashingtonPost.com where I learned that uh, Joe Biden has he's announced a new uh, national monument in my my neck of the woods um, back in the southwest. I thought you were going to say in your honor, which would have been amazing. Def- no, <laughs> he's announcing would, a national monument in my honor. <laughs> that would be stealing valor in a terrible way. We would get canceled up and down, uh, blue sky, <laughs> Macedon, everywhere. No, so this one is is uh, all about you know native folks in the southwest near Grand Canyon. Um, it's called. Uh, Baj Nawaf. Okay, I'm not even going to try to pronounce this. In fact, yeah, it's called uh, Ancestral Footprints of the Grand Canyon, kind of, kind of near the Grand Canyon. And and the main takeaway is that there's a fair bit of uranium in that part of the country, and now it's off limits to mining. You know, for the as long as the monument persists, it's not that much uranium, but it's some. And and uh, you know, lots of the Southwest has has been. Uh, historically uh, had a lot of uranium mines there back in the glory days of the nuclear power industry in the 1960s, 1970s. A lot of it comes from overseas, but now we're trying to develop domestic sources, but they won't be here. So that's nice. You know, a little, uh, little throwing a little bone to the tribes out in the Southwest. Uh, second piece of news is we have new Davis-Bacon Act prevailing wage standard regulations coming down the pike. Uh, this was actually some a story broken on the prospect by Lee Harris, uh, who was the first to report on this coming out. Um, and this, boy, it's quite complicated. Uh, is the bacon is the bacon part of it because it's going to save some bacon for the workers? It's going to give workers more bacon, more bacon, additional. Yes, the yeah the yeah pork barrel literally. Um, but basically, when the federal government, you know, it, uh, gives like companies grants or does like infrastructure spending, it has to decide how much to pay the people who are doing it. And the uh, up until the 1980s, there was the the rule was um, it had to be uh, the the payment at was at least 30 percent of the workforce, like the wage was that that is being paid to 30% of the workforce. Um, and that helped unions a lot because they, they typically had, you know, like all minimum of, wage. I mean, it had to the, the, the floor. So, so expel that out a bit more. So, so what the, the rule was is about what the floor had to be, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's complicated, but, but, but basically, no, I, I think you're right actually to say that, that, uh, you, um, contractors and, 
and the government had to pay uh, at least the prevailing wage, which was defined as uh, if it was paid to at least 30% of workers in an area. So like a wage that was paid to at least 30%. And that benefited unions quite a bit because they'd have a whole bunch of people making the same amount of money exactly. Um, and if you couldn't find a uh, that figure exactly, then the standard was calculated as the weighted average of all the workers in the area. Reagan changed that to just be like 50% plus one. So basically you could just take the lowest amount. Um, and that was 1982. And it, it's, it's sort of counterintuitive, but like basically if you run through the math, then this means that the government will be paying people more, be forcing contractors to pay people more if they accept federal grants. And this is regarded as a big win for unions. Um, in part because, you know, as, as we've reported at the prospect with all, all this green investment that's happening, like the bulk of it is going to red states because red states have a right to work states. They have lower wages. And so the businesses are going where it's cheaper to operate. And this will make it more expensive to operate. Uh, and it will make the union labor more competitive. Uh, and it will boost wages in the areas where these jobs are going. And so this is a, a major sort of sop to, to the labor movement and an attempt, I think, politically to say, like, we're doing all these green and all this green investment jobs and we're, they're, we want them to be good jobs, not jobs. And that's been a mixed <laughs> success at best, I would say. But, you know, the, this is the kind of thing that could actually put some real teeth into that by, by boosting up the wages. And to be clear, this is the Biden administration's executive action through uh, the Labor Department, right? So yeah, it's exactly. a labor rule. Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff like this, you know, <laughs> just like these all of the hundred years of disused authorities that have just been gathering dust, you know. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, a couple of nice pieces of news to to lead off on. Um I feel like this is kind Absolutely. of the story of the Biden administration in many ways. Like if several months ago, they did that new federal oil sale up in Alaska and all the, you know, a lot of native groups really pissed about that environmentalists. Well, now we're coming back to the other side. You know, he's like trying to please everybody, basically. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think our main story, our top story tonight uh, is... <laughs> The the Trump indictment. Should be music. Can we put? Can we have some some little fun music in there? Yeah, sure. Uh, um, yeah, the there's been a little bit of breaking news that I saw right as we were starting this. Um, you know, in the original indictment from Jack Smith, there uh, for over trying to overthrow the government, there are a number of co-conspirators named but not indicted. One of them was Kenneth Chesabro. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it or if it's cheese bro. Um, <laughs> cheese bro He's is a one, bro for sure. He, one of these uh, psycho lawyers, you know, who uh, was involved in the, you know, preposterous legal scheme to, you know, create slates of fake electors such that Trump could declare that he actually won the election. Um, classic kind of, uh, you know, every coup just about or most of them anyway, have some sort of like faux legality applied to them. Like you, you dream up some ridiculous excuse for why what you're doing is not hugely illegal. But 
Yeah, you always have to to couch it under the guise of legitimacy, right? Yeah. Um, But he said in this December 14th, 2020 memo, quote, my point here is that it is important that the alternate slates of electors meet and vote on December 14. If we are to create a scenario under which Biden can be prevented from reaching 270 electoral votes, even if Trump has not managed by then to obtain court decisions or state legislative resolutions invalidating enough results to push Biden below 270. So just a straight up admission that even if they lost all of their lawsuits, it didn't get state governments to invalidate the results. Uh, they were still going to try to um, go ahead or they still had it. This was still the plan. Yeah. And that fits, I think with, with a recent interview from John, Eastman, in which he said... Another lawyer for Trump. Yeah, yeah, he was another one of the... I think he was co-conspirator number one. And he was sort of the architect of this whole scheme. Um, sort of I've met this guy, by the way. Really? What's he like? Yeah, yeah. For, for an extended amount of time, too. We could get back. Let's let's do the news, and then, I, and then I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that. But let's... Yeah, just, just okay. to toss that in there. Yeah, so he, he said in this interview... Um, with uh, Claremont Institute's uh, Board of Directors Chairman Tom Klingenstein. Um, in this interview, Eastman said, quote, the, the, or he said that 2020, the 2020 election represented a, quote, existential threat to the very survivability, not just of our nation, but of the example that our nation properly understood provides to the world. And he referenced the Declaration of Independence, he said, quote, there's actually a provision in the Declaration of Independence that a people will suffer abuses while they remain sufferable, tolerable while they remain tolerable. At some point, abuses become so intolerable that it becomes not only their right, but their duty to alter or abolish the existing government. So right there. Nice. He nice. was he was doing the same kind of thing that uh, the American revolutionaries are doing against the British government in the American Revolution, which is overthrowing it uh not to create you know a a republic or whatever but to create a dictatorship um abolish you know using the word abolish that it was it was like yeah you know pretty pretty clear pretty straightforward he admitted (laughs) yeah yeah he's uh I mean, look, I, I think I just met him for a couple hours um, one day, but it was in the context of, uh, you know, kind of academic circle. Uh, he was uh, among a lot of people that he considered fellow travelers. So he, I think, spoke pretty freely. And, you know, he had a lot of energy. He was a, a sh- short guy, but but had a, a high energy and um, was amiable and all that, but certainly seemed like less interested in academic discourse as such and more interested in, in partisan power, which I mean, so I wasn't totally surprised that he ended up in the position that he ended up in um, because he was, he's really uh, a guy who seemed like he'd get fired up about the, you know, the good guys winning in his mind and, and how to achieve that. Right. So um, yeah, uh, it's funny though, when you meet people like that and these things happen, you just, uh, yeah, you just never know who you meet and what they're where they're going to end up. I guess, <laughs> but uh, no, I've met a number of of conservatives uh, that ended up uh, in different degrees of infamy. Um, 
<laughs> I, I can tell you, I can tell you more about that sometime. The dumbest by far is, is Stephen Moore, the, the quote unquote economist. Um, he was the least, least interesting, least impressive. Um, I mean, again, apparently guileless, uh, nice enough guy, but just dumb as a doornail, man. My <laughs> God. Uh, besides, besides being thoroughly partisan and, uh, you know, drinking his Kool-Aid, uh, just, just, boy, not a lot, not a lot going on there. Sorry, back to he the seems, <laughs> Stephen Morris seems like a kind of guy that basically, akin to a sort of pull string doll, like the like Woody in Toy Story, where he just is like <laughs> yes, Republican yes. policy good, Democrat yeah, policy I mean, bad. So super nice, super nice guy, but just like probably the easiest person to manipulate in the world. Uh, you know, by those that he wants to get in good with. Right. And, and Eastman was, was, you know, smarter than that, but also clearly really interested in, um, in his agenda and his team. And, and, uh, I could come almost picture these people in high school right? Yeah. and who they, they wanted to be, uh, part of the cool crew, um, and had different roles they'd want to play, but it's kind of, kind of evil. I mean, it's the, you know, stupid versus evil. That's right. The, the types yeah. of people that, that are in Republican politics. Yeah. And, you know, I think the fact that Eastman is going on, you know, I wrote an article along these lines, but the fact that Eastman is going on like public interviews and talking about how, yeah, we were doing the Declaration of Independence. We're, we, uh, we were doing revolution. I think it tends to indicate that, that, that they know if this is a fair trial, they're all going down. Um, (laughs) you know, that all this evidence, the stuff in the indictment, you know, it's a a lot of very telling stuff, you know, Trump telling Pence that you're too honest, you know, that indicates consciousness of guilt, you know, and like that you're, you're a, you're a lawyer, right? You, you would know more like there's this sort of men's men's ray question about like having the intention. And it seemed like, Mm -hmm. you know, that indicates that on some level Trump knew he was doing the bad thing, but like you can't get out of, get out of being, uh, you know, having a guilty conscience uh, simply by being someone with like narcissistic personality disorder who just (laughs) will believe anything, you know, Uh it's like if, Uh if tons and tons of, uh, credential people. And that's a, I think a smart thing about the indictment. In fact, that there's all these Republicans who are quoted in it saying like, I'm not going to betray my oath to the constitution. I voted for Trump, but he lost fair and square. And that's just how it is. I'm not going to overturn it for him. <laughs> yeah. All these justice department officials telling him, you know, it's like he makes some ridiculous claim. And then the director of national intelligence will come in and say like, that's, that's bullshit, man. That's not true. This is wackadoo <laughs> stuff. It, it, it didn't happen. And then he just go and repeat it again on Twitter, like five minutes later that, you know, the, the, the willful disregard for the facts, you know, I think as a sort of like legal, um, effect there, I would hope at least. Yeah, well, look, and and just uh, so without speaking on this particular case, but just generally speaking, um, it doesn't always function this way, obviously, because of the politics and power involved in in legality. But um, most standards that that, uh, judge something like, 
was the act intentional or was it negligent or, you know, uh, things that have to do with volition or uh, your mindset. You, you have, sure, testimony and evidence for your subjective state of, of mind. But usually what matters is like, what would a reasonable person, quote unquote, right, whatever that might be. But that's the, almost always like, what would the reasonable person um, think in this kind of situation, you know, or, or what would the reasonable person think? Uh, let's give an example in, um, in terms of like negligence, um, you know, which is obviously negligence is an unintentional tort, right? It's an unintentional harm that you cause to someone, uh, but like duty of care to someone that's like a stranger, you know, what, what you, you, you think about not like if you are, uh, an outlier in some way, or if you, if you're the person being harmed, if you're hypersensitive, that that isn't as important as like what, what a reasonable person would think is uh, a breach of a, d a duty of care or like uh, emotional distress. You know, what would a reasonable person think? Um, you know, what, what would a reasonable person, how would they feel in a certain situation? And, and is that um, emotional distress or not? Or if you're just like a hypersensitive uh, Karen and you see a person of color in the park and you're distressed, that doesn't, that doesn't justify the actions that follow um, just because subjectively you have uh, some kind of personality disorder or whatever, right? So I don't know if that helps um, answer your question, but like the, 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 the objective reasonableness standard is usually kind of, um, the way to think through most of these situations. And that doesn't let people off the hook because they're outliers psychologically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And when he's saying shit, like, uh, you know, what was it just t telling Mike Pence? It's like, just, just say it was corrupt and leave it up to me and the Republican members of Congress. Or when he's like, on the phone with the uh, Georgia Secretary of State. And in fact, I want to get to that. And another probable coming indictment in a second. He's uh, saying it like we, we just need 11,200 votes or however many it was. You know, like like he's clearly just a yeah. guy who's bound and determined to find some any excuse whatsoever exactly. to do yeah. the thing that he wants to do. And he does not care what the right. truth is at all. Um, the right. fact that he can seemingly parrot Newsmax horseshit with a straight face, that's no defense. No, re no reasonable person would think that he's doing anything other than just trying to will to power, right? Like just, yeah. just anything, right? It's, it's, uh, it, it's not plausible that his state of mind was uh, not grievously, <laughs> you know, violating the law and the Constitution. I think that's pretty pretty clear yeah and probably, so this probably clear for for most of the most of these guys right yeah well especially for eastman jesus you know this is hell yes i ordered the code red basically <laughs> oh you gotta insert that jack nicholson yeah like. you're goddamn right i did yeah that one um the yep. yeah so this this ex explains um their legal strategy which is just to to drag everything out to the past the election. Um, it's just a delay, delay, delay. Hope that they win the election. And then just like you're president and you can just put a lid on this somehow. Uh, the, the last week they burned up almost a whole week now on this protective order. Like uh, basically Jack Smith, you know, the special counsel is trying to like speed things up. He's, he like, he sees what's on, what's going on. And so he wanted to give yeah. Trump just, get the discovery process over as quickly as possible. But before he turned over his materials, um, 
he wanted a protective order saying that Trump couldn't discuss the evidence in public, which is like totally routine um, and especially warranted in this case, because, you know, for a fact, the second that he gets it, he's going to get on Truth social and take everything out of whatever is in there out of context or just lie about what it says and and whip up a case in the media about, you know, to to influence the trial, to try to try to, like, influence the jury or whatever. Um, and so, you know, get him to shut the fuck up for five seconds, which like, that's difficult for Trump. And so they've just gone back and forth with all these motions and requests for hearings and, and Trump wants a different protective order. And now they're going to have a in-person argument about it later this week. Um, and this is all gone super fast by federal judiciary standards. Uh, is I think the judge also, uh, knows what's going on here. But the yeah, and have we spelled it out to, to to the audience what's going on? Like why Trump, uh, other than wanting to be able to use social media, of course, to poison the well, um, he he and his team clearly know that the only way through this is to postpone, 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 and then hopefully win the next presidential election. Yeah, and once you've done that, you figure you got the powers of the presidency. Just purge the Justice Department issue some order, you know, the Supreme Court will probably back you up, say it's all whatever, you know, have the Manhattan DA arrested uh, f- for treason or something um, that, you know, prosecuting a sitting president is, uh, I mean, especially sitting President Trump, that's, uh, it's difficult, you know, that's what impeachment is supposed to be for, but impeachment is broken, doesn't work. Um, and yeah, so, uh, one last thing to note about this is that that this, you know, Merrick Garland is largely responsible for this state of affairs, the the timing situation, at least. You know, he sat on his hands. He dithered uh, from March 10th or whatever, when he was uh, confirmed in, in 2021 to uh, November 2022. That's when he appointed Jack Smith, the special counsel. Um, and he had, uh, you know, the advantage of the January 6th committee stuff that they dug up and so he got his thing done in like eight 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 and a half months something like that pretty quick for a massive federal investigation but i would bet money he could have gotten it done in a year if you know he'd been appointed right away you know this isn't a hard case to make half of it's just public information um the the call we referenced garland's man he, he is just the epitome of what you once wrote. Uh, and correct me how you actually phrase this. It's like uh, the, the limp dishrag Democrat, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> just, just totally um, just incapable of using power to advance anyone's interest. It just completely worthless, right? Yeah. It's just like Obama when, when um, he let, Mitch McConnell buffalo him into not making a statement on the like Trump benefiting from the, you know, Russian interference effort because he thought it would look partisan. <laughs> like, yeah. And of well, course, Garland was Obama's pick, lest we forget, right? Yeah. For the spot that, uh, that never was to be. <laughs> Loser. I just love the. Po- I just. <laughs> Don't you just love how blatant the political differences and how the Democrats and the Republicans maneuver? Uh, the Republicans are like, yeah, yeah, you're just not going to have that seat. Just uh, advise and consent. That's constitutionally required of us. Nah, nah, we're just going to not meet with with your nominee at all. And we're just going to wait this out. Right. Yeah. 
Though it does, on the other hand, it strikes me as kind of funny. You know, remember the Robert Mueller like hero worship, like the 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 yeah. Krasenstein brothers who wrote that like horrific oh, yeah. uh, children's book. Um, there's that podcast Mueller she wrote that was going That's over right. every aspect of the investigation. I think that's still going. Um, but you know, <laughs> there's, there's that tendency, especially, you know, from liberals to, to do some hero worship of a certain elite, uh, political actor, hoping they'll save the day. Yeah. And, you know, I guess to give Mueller a little bit of credit, like investigating a sitting president is a very different business than ex- investigating an ex president. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, Mueller blinked, you know, it's like he had a in his uh, report, if you read it, there's like a dozen instances of Trump obstructing the investigation and he just declined to to prosecute any any of them. Um, but now we have Jack Smith, who actually is bringing the fire. You know, he's he's he has some guts he's trying yeah. to get him. He's really trying to get him. <laughs> it's it's like it, should, it, wait, should this be the finally we've been talking about a segment uh <laughs> now I'm, I'm forgetting what it's called uh fighters versus fight yeah fighter ch- chicken shit right <laughs> yeah right <laughs> fighters versus chicken shits or fighters versus flighters perhaps you know the the people who cut yeah. and run uh you know fighter flighter fighter chicken shit we've got a fighter finally yeah got a fighter a guy who really does seem to be it's like th- we got to get we got to take this guy down um structured the indictment in a in a smart way like get, getting him on the clearest and easiest to prove charges and rushing it through as quickly as he could but also building up like a airtight case so yeah you know where's my jack smith he wrote podcast whatever the <laughs> jacked up okay. that'd we be a good stop. one uh, <laughs> so we, we can stop worshiping these uh these people and just be happy that um, there's not another fuck up in position of power trying to do something. Uh, yeah. I remember, uh, uh, you know, in my piece, I quoted Grant's memoirs. He talks about the right of revolution in there. And he, he says, uh, yeah, it exists. But, uh, quote, any people or part of a people who resort to this remedy stake their lives, their property, and every claim for protection given by citizenship on the issue. Victory or the conditions imposed by the conqueror must be the result. And, you know, <laughs> I don't think yep. I need to spell out with uh, great detail what typically happens to people who fail to overthrow the government or fail to carry out a revolution. It's true. It is, it is short and it is not sweet. Um, so let's see. Yeah. Should we talk about the, uh, Georgia, the possible Georgia indictment coming up here? Yeah. There's yet another piece, piece of, piece of reporting that dropped on this, uh, right as we were getting ready to record, but it's fairly straightforward. This is a piece in Rolling Stone by, um, Adam, Ronsley and uh, Aswin Subasang, Swin. Everyone knows Swin. Everyone should know Swin. But anyway, they write three sources who have spoken with prosecutors tell Rolling Stone that they believe uh, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis is likely to indict not just Trump, but a number of his associates involved in attempting to overturn the election as well. Figures of particularly high interest have included, but aren't limited to, the once obscure lawyer Kenneth Cheesebro, 
John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani, sources who've dealt with the prosecutors, tell Rolling Stone. Georgia's racketeer-influenced and corrupt organizations statute offers prosecutors broader authority to define and charge criminal conspiracies than in other states, potentially spelling trouble for Trump campaign alumni involved in the attempt to overturn Georgia's 2020 election. Um, Willis is reportedly weighing the use of the RICO statute in the Trump investigation, potentially giving her the authority to charge others beyond Trump as participants in an alleged criminal conspiracy. And then they've got a a legal expert in here saying, quote, one of the most important things under any conspiracy statute is that any statement made by any conspirator in furtherance of the conspiracy is admissible evidence against all conspirators. In other words, it's not hearsay. In this instance, every defendant could be confronted by the stupidest things Rudy Giuliani said. (laughs) Tremendous. Tremendous. Yeah. So that's fun. It's, yeah. So what's the, are you keeping track of how many different, so we've got New York, we've got Georgia, like what's, can you, can we catch people up on like how many things are in the air at once right now? Yeah. So we've got three, um, official indictments and one coming there's yeah. The one in New York basically for like business crimes, um, and the stormy Daniels payment. Uh, then there's the, federal indictment for January 6th. There's the other federal indictment for the Mar-a-Lago keeping classified documents in an unlocked bathroom and lying to the government about uh, how many uh, classified documents he had in his possession. Um, That one's in Florida, if you remember. And so he drew Eileen Cannon, who's a maniacal Trumper and is being a real recalcitrant about uh, that you know, prosecution, even though it's another totally open and shut case, they've got him on tape, um, waving it around, you know, boasting about how he, how he had these uh, classified documents improperly. Uh, but yeah, she's really letting him delay it out for a long time. And then there's the one in Georgia, the state level potential indictment for probably conspiracy or racketeering and whatnot. Uh, for attempting specifically to overturn the the state election in Georgia, when and I'm sure you know the the call again publicly reported reported on January third, 2021. <laughs> CNN had the tape and the transcript where Trump was threatening the uh, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, basically saying like, "Well, if people don't go along with this, they could get in trouble," and you know, just give me my eleven thousand whatever it was votes. Yeah. And that's the thing about narcissists that, that, you know, narcissists, they they can be smart in some ways. They don't have to be stupid in every way, but they are necessarily blind in many ways because they're also solipsists and, and, and their, their emotional state and their desires, uh, like Thrasymachus in Plato's Republic, like that is their universe that they are tyrants like a toddler is a tyrant who only understands the will to power and uh, totally uncontrollable urges, desires um, that they then try to instantiate through their their will and, and through whatever, whatever mechanisms they can. But they're totally blind to what's reasonable and rational and what very much can be used against them uh, in the expression of those desires and the seeking of those desires to be fulfilled. 
Um, so th there is definitely an Achilles heel for a narcissist like Trump and like his his goons, right? This is uh, it's just incredible how much that <laughs> they've left uh, in an evidentiary sense, right? Yeah, I think the the Florida documents case is the funniest one for me in that respect because you know the government uh tried to give him every opportunity to yeah. uh wriggle out of it you know that i mean hey, sure you sure you don't got any more uh you, you maybe forgot about some you know <laughs> yeah they i mean typically people go they get hammered for for uh m improper classified document storage you know remember reality winner she got five years in prison for uh That's you right. know sending one document to the intercept jackasses who immediately <laughs> racially ratted her out oh yeah oh make no mistake our system crushes people without power uh, and there's like an inverse relationship between how much power you have and, and how much you're crushed or let off the hook. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, that includes Trump and, and his his cronies. They, they uh, are incredibly privileged. And because of their incredible stupidity and narcissism, um, they are still in big trouble. Yeah, he the, he. So they knew he had the documents and he refused to give them back. Even that, that should be like many years in federal prison for, for, for right. not doing then, that. Then he lied about it. Yeah. Also. Then he gave some of them back, said he had, but that was a lie. And he had a bunch more and they raided his uh, place and they found him. And it, it was like, you dumb motherfucker. <laughs> like you, if he had just <laughs> in that fir the first initial violation of the law, just given the documents back, then he would have gotten away with it. He basically forced them to prosecute him. It's amazing. It's all, but it, you, you, well, that's the thing, though. You almost wonder if it's intentional because it's it's a testing of his mantra, which is if you're a star, they let you do it, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's that's his worldview that's been affirmed for him his whole life, and he's he's like, I should be even more true now that I was president and should still be president. Absolutely, you know? yeah, and I. You know, I, I hope and pray that this maybe inaugurates a cultural shift among the American sort of political establishment that like this shit has gone way too far. Like I was just reading another news story that broke five minutes before we were recording, but that uh, the the uh, Justice Department or no, the special counsel, whoever had subpoenaed uh, Trump's Twitter um, data. Uh, presumably including DMs, you know, that's what they wanted to read. Um, and they can do that under federal wiretap statute. You get a warrant and Twitter wouldn't give them Elon Musk. I'm sure what he was, he was like, no, this is free speech or some bullshit. Like, no, it isn't. The, go the government can get a warrant. That's in the Constitution, you fucking dickhead. Um, <laughs> in fact, the warrant is based on principles of free speech because the point is that the interference by the government has to be based on evidence that there is some justifiable reason to invade someone's privacy. It's yeah. these, none of these rights are, are absolute, you moron. <laughs> yeah. And so the judge said, uh, is, is like, you don't give this to me. I'm imposing a, a, a $50,000 penalty on you. And that's going to double every day that you don't do it. And it, so three days later, they did do it. And she fined them $350,000, which is 
I mean, that's not very much for a company like Twitter, but it's also probably teetering on the edge of bankruptcy, thanks to how Elon Musk has totally ruined the place. Um, but, you know, $50,000 doubling every day, that adds up quick, uh, even for somebody like Elon Musk. Uh, in, in a month or so, you're talking about like, you know, what quadrillions of dollars or whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, it's a, like th- this is a, the him and Musk and Trump are just peas in a pod, you know, in the way that they 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 just instinctively uh, lash out at critics, do whatever they want. The the incredible entitlement that you're talking about, the the tyrant of a toddler mindset. They've always been able to do whatever they want, lie, cheat and steal and get away with it every time. And and now I I think I hope you know just be like we can't we we can't deal with this anymore you know we need some standards at the top you know somebody needs to be made an example of and I think that's what's motivating Jack Smith at least um. <laughs> yeah that's the thing about our system it is not reliable to do these kinds of things but it does do them sometimes and and those are instances where we have to be very uh, supportive of those efforts and happy when they succeed because. Uh, these little victories matter, right? Um, because there are a lot of reasons these days to have no hope and to just think those narcissists with power and money will control everything. But they don't always win. And they're wrong in their narcissism and solipsism. Uh, their egos and their power and their wealth are not the only factors that uh, determine reality, right? Yeah. And I do think it's got it, it has been this bad for a relatively short period of time. I mean, remember the early Bush administration when the, when the Bush Justice Department prosecuted Enron and Ken Lay and uh, Jeff Skilling and Arthur Anderson, um, even though, you know, Ken Lay was one of Bush's biggest campaign donors. It was like there was a, enough, uh, you know, rule of law legitimacy in the system left uh, from, you know, the previous 50 years of building it up under the New Deal administrative state that it was like, no, these guys violated the law and they need to be held accountable for it. And it was only in the I mean, you could also probably talk about the Nixon pardon, but there's a hysterical reaction to Arthur Anderson being sued into bankruptcy for like industrial scale document fraud and destruction of evidence, you know, pulping giant uh, boxes full of evidence, uh, running them through a shredder. And it was like, oh, I mean, look at all these people who lost their jobs for doing all these crimes. (laughs) Like, you know, the politics of that movie, Liar, Liar, kind of bad. But that that scene, I I bring it up, you know, stop breaking the law, asshole. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, you know, that's... Making some more examples out of these people, you know, just be like, there's certain, at least certain standards, you know, it's like, you're never going to have the same standard of justice for the rich and the poor, but you can try to do as best you can, at least. Well, yeah. And as uh, our friend Dave Kybe has has said on on Twitter, uh, or I don't know where he said it lately, but um, for, uh, it's not bad abolitionism to be against the uh, prosecution of someone like Trump, you know. Uh, or Harvey Weinstein or whatever. Um, in fact, it's just status quo preservationism for those kind of guys to get off and for you know the poor and marginalized to be crushed by the system. So it, you, you're not you're you're just preserving the current system if you're if you're rooting for not going after these guys, right? Yeah. We've got our, our last few minutes. We could talk about a couple of other things. Um, we've, yeah. We've got the American Political Science Association. 
getting completely tangled up in the Los Angeles hotel strike. Yeah, that could be a whole another episode and maybe maybe we could do it. But uh, long story short, right, you have, um, you know, the National Association for Political Scientists uh, holding this annual meeting end of or supposed to be holding it end of August, beginning of September over a number of days in Los Angeles um, at uh, the Marriott in L.A., right? And uh, the workers there went on strike. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> there's a long, <laughs> a long story with lots of players in terms of the response of uh, APSA uh, about what to do about that and that the demands of the union, the, the demands of many um, political scientists. Um, long story short, uh, they were asked to move all the panels online, basically, um, and have no no in-person uh, events, even at other hotels. And of course, a bunch of, you know, smarty pants political scientists are like, well, that's not breaking a picket line. Uh, these are, you know, what does it matter if we go to this other hotel? And um, and there's a, <laughs> there's a lot going on there because, first of all, just do what the union says to support the workers because they know more than you do. And sure yeah. enough, other hotels uh, that were non-strike ended up being um, hotels where the workers went on strike. And I don't know, you can fill in some of these details, but basically it's, it's, a, it's a, just a kind of uh, pathetic show um, from the association representing political scientists. And many political scientists on social media are embarrassing themselves in the profession by not doing the simple, straightforward thing of not crossing a picket line, which is not just a physical picket line. It's, it's, it has a broader meaning than that. Um, so there's just that, you know, people who are uh, too clever by half or have just maybe in their hearts, no support for workers, um, fucking up what should be a very simple show of support. Yeah. I think the point about the union communicating with them is an important one, you know, because you generally don't want to do a boycott unless the union says to do it. You know, like you see the, the strike in uh, acting and writing in Hollywood and a lot of people are like, I'm canceling my Netflix subscription. But the, the union, last time I checked, they, they say, don't do that. Uh, you know, you, yeah. you, you want to do a boycott that is, uh, legible as a product of worker power. If it's just random right. people doing an uncoordinated thing because yeah. they saw something on social media, that's, it's not going to have that effect. It needs to, it needs to be coordinated and it needs to be the result of the, you know, sort of union, de uh, request. But they did make that request. It has to it, it has to hurt the right people, but it also has to be understood as being a source of this particular dispute that caused the suffering, right? Like, and that's why it has to be coordinated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess I don't. I mean, I'm less um, sort of ensconced in academia than than uh, than you are, probably. But um, it does seem to me to be a uh, indicative reaction from like certain quarters of academia you know like products of the sort of legacy system the way that it used to work um you know 30 40 years ago you went through grad school and you know you're basically uh all but guaranteed 
some kind of reasonable middle class salary at least. You know, maybe not a tenure track job, but like something. Um, now it's just you know it's the, what thirty percent or something of of academic faculty are tenured. Uh, contingent. Oh, I was going to say yeah, uh, two thirds contingent. Yeah. yeah, and increasing share of adjuncts who are just paid like dog shit. Um, and you know, I mean, the whole profession has just been proletarianized. And you know, I think yeah. uh, we've seen before. Well, you know, the like, irony is. In this situation, though, you would think that would mean that the tenured professors uh, who are protected would would be easy for them to support. Like they make more money, they're protected, uh, and they're not the ones that are attending this conference to try to get a job or to try to get a uh, a tenure track position that has stability rather than a contingent position. Um, but you see a lot of uh, people who have the cushy uh, tenured positions with various levels of wealth and status, um, basically say, you know, uh, I mean, they might give different reasons, but they're just kind of, they want to do the fun thing that they already paid for and they were going to look forward to it and sure it was going to be invigorating and in-person is better than online and, uh, and, oh, you know, what about the, how this will affect future conferences? Maybe they'll always be online. All of this nonsense is, is a lot of it is coming from the safe, protected group of academics, whereas the the vulnerable ones um, are in many ways the ones that have been in solidarity and, and they're the ones that don't have as much money and they, they're losing some money um, that, that maybe already uh, went into the, the, the flights. Um, and, uh, you know, that they're the ones that maybe sometimes are looking for a, a better job or a new job uh, or a first job, whatever it is. Um, and so there's also something interesting going on there in the dynamics that that uh, yeah. that is revealing of where solidarity tends to come from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people who who will experience material harm from to their careers potentially from not being able to participate, network, present their research, and all that stuff. Um, and I think, yeah, as it, it, it is just as you say, it tends to demonstrate that I think that the uh, relations of academic production, for lack of a better word. Uh, they they tend to produce a kind of petty bourgeois, um, you know, mindset with respect to their own profession. Sometimes, not always. You you have seen a fair number of fairly prominent folks uh, coming out and saying, "No, we're I'm not doing this. I'm not." That's crossing right. The, of the course, pig. no, no. In fact, guests of our podcasts have been especially good. Yeah, <laughs> there's a yeah, whole exactly. number of them that we that we could name. Um, but for example, uh, there have been people who have even offered because a lot of people when they I don't know if, if uh, the average listener knows this, but a lot of times uh, what these conferences are about, in addition to the to the job hunt and networking, is to workshop a paper by experts in a field who can help you uh, get something published because of the feedback they gave you and the way that your paper improves from other people reading it and talking about it with you on the panel and so forth. Uh, so if you know, if panels are getting uh, canceled, even though the, the ask is to move them online. So theoretically, all that should still be there. Uh, people like William Claire Roberts on Twitter was like, hey, uh, I'm an expert in these areas. Uh, send me your papers. Uh, I will give you feedback. Right. Like like stand with the workers 
and and let's let's do the right thing here. But I get it. You know, people need help. I'm here to help. And then Femi jumped in and, and Femi said the same thing, although he had a follow up tweet. Uh, I'll do four. <laughs> like, like, let, let me just let, let me be clear. I don't have all the time in the world, but I can I can do like four of these, which, you know, that's that's like what you might do on a panel. That's reasonable. Um, but just lots of lots of great signs of, of solidarity from um well, oh, it's funny. It occurs to me, Femi's not even a political scientist. He's a philosopher. Uh, so that's super dope uh, of him to yeah. do that. Um, but uh, the, the the political theorists uh, have tended to be really good, which is interesting um, and maybe connected to the fact that like they are much more comfortable with normative <laughs> uh, kinds of thinking. And, and I've experienced a lot of non-political theorists who uh, don't think political theory should be part of political science and, and things like justice and, and, and all those normative questions. That's not what we're up to. And so, of course, that then means what, what, what is your purpose? What is your function as a discipline if, if you're not into normative questions? Your function is to reproduce the current system and, the inst- and understand, quote unquote, descriptively the institutions that exist so that you can sustain them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there are definitely a lot of milk toast political scientist to say the least um i remember the fashion it was a number of years ago that uh you know the the party decides remember that book um i read an article about this in current affairs you know it was like the consensus in around 2008 the party decides the the elites make the decisions at back doors that are then ratified in the primary and then donald trump uh destroyed that idea uh but then there was the consensus that for for a while at least among i don't know sort of like democratic party aligned folks that actually voters are stupid and policy doesn't matter and it's all about identity and that i think also is a grotesque oversimplification um but yeah you know it's like especially 10 20 years ago you know it's like you're a tenured professor like a, at a like a wealthy institution and it's like you're you're just working by yourself or with you know a handful of colleagues and you're sort of producing a, a academic theories and you're like sort of like making them your own little kind of private property in a way like um you know that this is my thing and i have to build my career on on this that, that this is my reputation and i made it and, and yeah, so i think right. it's right. if you're not careful <laughs> you know again it's not a it's, it's not just, a universal thing but you can turn into a kind of uh, used car salesman type that is the typical but that is the typical liberal mindset that doesn't understand how your good is inextricable from the the good of others and you can't just think like it's a collective action action problem you can't just think like oh but for me doing this would be better like that's the whole point is that you can't yeah. think that way or else the bad things will keep happening and in this case the bad things are uh you know our class system dominating uh the workers and um so yeah Come on, people, it's, use your your, your brains yeah. here. I think it's a, you know, I write about this in my book a fair amount, uh, that it's not even descriptively true of academia, like maybe even especially not academia. It's like you don't own yeah. this idea. You built on right. 2,000 years of, of other people pushing the ball forward a half inch at a time, you know, and, and like you're working with colleagues, yeah. all this stuff's yeah. up in the air. All major discoveries right. practically are co-discovered by different groups of people working independently. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, heroic genius uh, is a misleading way to think about uh, academics, even for extreme geniuses like, uh, you know, Darwin or somebody. 
So yeah, don't cross the picket line, man. Um, <laughs> That's right. So, and, and thanks to everyone who's been supporting the workers and uh, yeah, keep up the organizing and, and, and the, uh, the solidarity and shows of support. Means yeah. These, these are the, the, these are the fights, the discrete fights that put theory into praxis and to practice and um, actually show what you believe, right? Not just, yeah. you know, ideals and principles uh, are bullshit unless, uh, oh, look, you might have to sacrifice. That's actually the point. Sacrifice is painful or you might lose money. It might be deleterious to your career. It might suck. It might, uh, you know, take away uh, a chance to meet people in person for the first time in a couple of years, whatever. That's how it goes when you're trying to struggle against, you know, powerful forces that are harming people. That it, yeah. it's, it's not, you know, it, what matters more is the question. And how much does it matter to you to look out for those that are oppressed? Yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, I feel it's like I, people would be harmed. You know, it wouldn't be as comfortable to hold the conference somewhere else, you know, or to move it partly online. But it's like, OK, you, you just like take the hit on the hotel charge and like move it into a Motel 6 somewhere and have a meetings out in a park or something like you could make it. Oh, so, so to be clear, the, to be clear, the ask is to put it totally online, no physical locations oh, okay, in okay. L.A. or anywhere, anywhere. Yeah, totally online. Yeah. Um, and the. And there are reasons for that. And, and there's been just uh, innumerable efforts to explain the logic uh, of the union to people. But at the end of the day, you don't really need to. It's not important that you understand the logics like the union's logic. You just need to support it. <laughs> That's yeah. the bottom line, basically. Yeah. Uh, should we end on some good news? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Some uh, guaranteed basic income experiments. Um there's a we've got a great piece from one of our um, interns at the prospect who wrote about uh, guaranteed income experiments in Rochester, which um, are funded by the American Rescue Plan. Um, the big old Biden. Who's the, who's the intern? Give 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 uh, some props. Who, what's the name? Elizabeth Miesensall. She's great. Um, nice. And. Yeah, just, uh, I mean, <laughs> it's it's funny, you know, it's like they keep doing these experiments. This one's pretty small. It's just taking a couple million dollars and and, and uh, giving uh, how many? Uh, 351 individuals um, who are at or below 185% of the federal poverty level, uh, guaranteed income, $500 a month for a year. And... So this wouldn't be this isn't a UBI. It's more it's more kind of welfare-y um, with the means test. But you know the point is to sort of like discover the ostensible point is to discover what happens. What happens when you take people who are working class or in poverty and you give them five hundred dollars a month? And we've done I think literally dozens of these experiments, <laughs> and and every time it's like, damn, everybody's yes. doing so good. <laughs> look at look at all these. No, not not only that, that they're responsible. Uh, the la labor participation goes up, social problems go go down. Uh, all the indicators of flourishing uh, communally and with respect to the people getting the money and their families go up, right? Good things up. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it's just. Of course, it's never about the evidence or the logic, but 
you know, all of the welfare queen, uh, racist, classist language, all of the presumptions that poor people, <clears throat> they're just stupid and depraved and you can't give them money. They'll use it on booze and drugs and whatever. Like those are just hyperbolic uh, versions of what even, quote unquote, respectable politicians or, uh, you know, ideologues would would say about why it's bad to um, I mean, look at what happened when the pandemic uh the, the most generous uh, welfare giveaway in, in, in our history and, and in response to the pandemic in the world uh, was done in the midst of Republicans being furious and just losing their minds that some people would be paid more to stay home than to go back to their jobs because of how poorly they were getting paid uh, in the midst of a pandemic where, of course, it was really important to have people, <laughs> right, not just survive, but also uh, not not be forced into dangerous workplaces. Um, yeah. And, and so, like, the unemployment, the unemployment was just um, super generous. We, we cut child poverty in half. We did all these great things. But uh, the moral outrage, though, is is not because of the consequences, because the consequences are good. It's actually about um, a hatred for those who would seek to have more as against those who already do, because to legitimate that equalizing is to undermine the system that creates that inequality, right? And so you have to have that kind of whip rhetorically to say, no, 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 you don't deserve a handout, right? No, no, no. You you actually deserve to be in that pitiful, poor place where you're suffering, right? Yeah. Yeah. I th and I mean, I think there's sort of like two aspects of that ide ideology. There's the idea that uh, poor people, like, like the working class in general needs to be on the verge of starvation. Otherwise they won't work. They've got to have the, the hounds of, of hunger, like constantly nipping at their That's heels. Right. Um, and I mean, the problem with that is it's just not true. You know, it's all these guaranteed income experiments. People actually yes, work more. Exactly. They find it easier to find a job because it's like one of those things. Yes. Uh, to, like the transaction costs or not being able to like afford a car makes it really difficult to like go out to job interviews and like a million other things. Um, right. People don't so, so but besides being abhorrent as as like. Wait, you're doing you're 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 making people suffer so that they work to serve your your slavish system. It's not even descriptively true, though. To your point, right? <laughs> it's like forget about how unjust it would be. Yeah, no, I th and I think the the real thing, the real it's a it's a a, a moral ideological belief that poor people did this themselves. It's not the system's fault. Um, it's, it's that these people are degenerates and, uh, above all rich people should be right. spared from taxation because how, <laughs> yes. you know, yes. it would take more than a couple million dollars to do a, you know, universal basic income or like, you know, expand the child tax credit or whatever, like any, uh, universalist welfare state stuff that's going to require taxing people, especially the rich. Uh, and you know, that's the thing that they want to avoid above all else. And, you know, this is it's like the it, conservatism in, yeah. in the income distribution. It's like protect the people at the top and kick the people on the bottom. And that's but it's, don't it's forget the link. But don't forget the don't forget the all important link here too. when when you starve 
the state's ability to provide public goods and to care for its people. You legitimate the idea from the, the capitalists and, and, and the powers that be that actually it's the private sphere that takes care of everything and they have all the power and control, if, if, right? Because yeah. look at this dysfunctional state. You're paying all this money for what? And so like when, when people today, because uh, I think two-thirds of people say that their taxes are too high, it's because they're not getting anything that they're aware of. Uh, in yeah. part because Democrats are so stupid, they hate to brag about anything. They they want to like bury the lead every time they do something good. They want to like like get it through without people knowing that the government did it for you. Actually, uh, whereas yeah. Trump is like, here's my name on the check. Here you go. <laughs> but in, in any case, though, like it's not just about the taxes taking the money and and power uh, from the rich. It's that if the state is using funds for for serving all the people, then suddenly, wait a minute. We don't need these quote unquote geniuses in Silicon Valley. We don't need this private sphere to make all these decisions about what, what we're going to produce and, and, and what we're not going to produce and what people should get paid. And, and, uh, you know, they're not going to solve climate change for us. Actually, we're going to take away their power, not just their money. We're going to democratically decide more about how to live, what's produced and all these things, right? It's about democracy too. Like these, the fascist anti-democratic thing is totally interconnected. Right. With their their purse getting like lined. In other words, they want to be rich so that they have the power over workers so that their class position, their position to decide things and to be in charge of everything remains like that's the ultimate reason for the money and, and reason for delegitimizing the state. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And that and this is probably why. um these type of experiments, the, they're uh, not – I mean, you're not going to convince many people with just one. But I do think, you know, over time, yeah. this is having – and it's doing some important political There's work. There's so many. That you can – that whenever people are like, oh, they're – like Joe Manchin's. Like, oh, these poor people are just going to spend their welfare money on on drugs. You can thwack down like a, you know, foot-thick ream of studies to be like, no, they aren't. Look. Look at the research, you dumb – you dumb motherfucker. <laughs> Um. <laughs> well, no, that's the thing. You, you know, we forget how many important decisions come down to one idiot from West Virginia um, agreeing to vote a certain way on a bill that might have billions of dollars of consequences. Yeah, and, trillions. And that person's decision, or trillions, and that's not even about maybe it's partly about that person's inner ability to accept reality, but it might be about their ability to not say certain things without looking really bad and stupid. Um, and they have to at least perform legitimacy in certain ways uh, among the people that they care what they think, their colleagues or whomever, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that that's why, that's the contrast to like, the Trump threat is not unique in the sense of uh, there's never been bad actors or bad institutional uses of power before, but like, Usually it has to be couched under legitimacy. Now we said even Trump tries to couch it under legitimacy. He really won. But like these guys are mostly blatant, uh, more than we've ever seen before about, no, no, will to power. We just deserve everything. Uh, we're going to lie blatantly. We're going to steal blatantly. People like Joe Manchin, you know, they'll get caught out and, and, and reveal that they're getting, you know, funded by, uh, <laughs> you know, natural gas or the oil industry or whatever, but they will not admit that they're corrupt. They will pretend to be legitimate and they will say things about, um, you know, 
poor people or whomever uh, with arguments that they want to at least be perceived as respectable by, by some people, uh, whether it's people in D.C. or, or whomever uh, in the Senate. And as you say, over time, certain stances just are not tenable anymore unless you become a, a crazy fringe. Um, and, and that's just a different beast, right? Yeah. Yep. But um I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Uh, we, you know, guaranteed income. Uh, you know, we love, that's a great, a great experiment where you're like, you're getting some, uh, some nice data out of it, I'm sure. But also like a bunch of people you're are getting people some money also. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love, I love, the, <laughs> I love that today under the guise of like science, let's, <clears throat> oh yes, let's do some studies to uh, learn things and actually <laughs> let's just throw money at people that way. Right. It's like exactly. these egghead liberals will only give people money if it's to, to learn something and we'll just, uh, you know, use that Trojan horse. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we love to see that and we'll, you know, maybe report back if we ever find uh, what the results are in a year. But uh, other than that, thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll see you in the next episode.